Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. The text is printed in the bulletin for you. Look at uh, verses 17 through 19. Um, so how do you like that, uh, that Old Testament reading from Song of Solomon? Did it make any of you squirm? <laughs> it was among the least racy of uh, verses from Song of Solomon. Thanks, Brian and Larissa, for having the courage to do that. Um, usually the scripture reading earlier in the service is kind of a tip-off to what's coming in the sermon, so if your kids are still in the room at this point, it's your own fault. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, kids, uh, I've been talking to you at the beginning of the sermons lately, um, and this morning we're going to talk about marriage, and Ransom sometimes is kind of my guinea pig for this, and uh, testing out material, and I asked him yesterday, whether he had any questions about marriage. And he said, nope, and twirled off in his Batman cape. <laughs> and uh, so I got nothing for you, kids. Uh, you are spared this morning. <clears throat> um, actually, we're not talking about anything graphic, so everybody will be all right. Uh, we've been going through Colossians. We're seeing how the gospel is the power of God um, to change our lives, that we uh, we desperately need to focus on the gospel of God's grace to us through Jesus Christ uh, in order to grow as Christians. Right? Um, it might seem a bit anticlimactic at this point um, when the, the letter of Colossians starts out with such lofty, grand, majestic thoughts of the universal preeminence of the Son of God and rivets our attention to things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Um, a bit anticlimactic just now to, to apply such glorious thoughts to the mundane, everyday, earthly relationships that we have, like marriage. And maybe some of you are getting to this point in the uh, series, this point in the letter, I hope not, but uh, getting to this point say, well, now we finally get to the concrete stuff, we can stop paying attention to this gospel stuff we've been talking about for so long. Um, or coming at it from another angle, it might be difficult for us uh, to see how the gospel connects at all to the concrete, uh, I mean, real earthly, mundane type stuff that we live in, uh, in the here and now. How can those who are heavenly minded be of any earthly good? Right? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Uh, how do we draw the connection between the gospel, between thoughts of heaven, between thoughts of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of God who is in heaven, and um, and our regular lives here on earth. And that's what um, Paul wants us to do here at the end of his letter, and that's what we uh, should be doing throughout our lives, discovering how the good news of God's grace makes a difference in um, any and every situation in life. We're trying to apply the gospel to life, to where we all are. And over the next couple of weeks, then, we'll look at a few of the ways that the gospel applies to uh, sort of the, the primary relationships in which uh, most of us exist, uh, marital relationships, parental relationships, and uh, workplace uh, rela relationships. But this morning, we'll look at the, the marital relationship, especially how the gospel shapes our view of... Um, the Bible talks about a lot more when it talks about marriage, but this morning we're, we're talking about authority and submission. Yikes right? Um, 
that's, that's what we've hit as we've come through the, uh, the book of Colossians. So uh, we're going to need God's help with this. Let's pray, and then we'll read uh, Colossians 3. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, sometimes it is hard for us to hear. Most of the time it's hard for us to apply, to believe, and to be changed by it. And this would not happen if it weren't for your help. So we pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts and renew our minds, transform us through the hearing of your word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so these verses come at this point in the letter for a very important reason. If Paul's main concern in writing to the Colossians, in writing to us, um, if Paul's main concern were simply to inform you of your duties in this life, then his letters would be much shorter, right? In fact, uh, generally speaking, the first half of most of his letters would be entirely done away with, and you'd be left kind of with a reduced, uh, like a short list of um, imperatives, commands, proverbs about what you're supposed to do in certain situations and relationships. But that's nothing like what we see in the New Testament. Uh, not even in James's epistle, which is the most like uh, a book of Proverbs that we have in the New Testament. Uh, not even in that. Um, I bring this up because often we take verses like these uh, pretty much totally out of context, and we just think of them as rules for Christian living, that if we keep them, then we'll be doing all right. Uh, but the Bible is more concerned with how our relationship with God, uh, which is entirely a matter of his grace to us, it's entirely a matter of his initiative, sending his son and sending his spirit to, to save us and change us, how that relationship with God motivates us to live for him. Not just what we do, but how. How we're to live for God in this world. And that's why Paul's letters always start the way they do. They extol the grace of God that's at work in the world at work in history, at work in our lives. And that's why it's tremendously important that every time you think of rules for Christian living, uh, that, that these, uh, like these, you, you also think of the gospel as the only way to empower you to live for God in these ways. Right? Every time you think of rules or commands, you must think of how the gospel enables you to keep those rules or commands. With these uh, verses in particular, for example, if you skip over the first two and a half chapters of Colossians and try to use these verses to fix anything in your marriage or in your life, then you will miss the point entirely and you'll probably end up abusing these verses in terrible ways. Um, these verses describe living for God in your marriage, which you can only really do as a response to God's grace, right? You need the first two and a half chapters of Colossians in order to even understand what these are about. <clears throat> and um, 
we see that in, in verse 17. It's, it's kind of this transitional verse. Um, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus who we've been hearing about, right? Um, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we live for God in everything we do, word or deed, in light of the gospel, in the name of the Lord Jesus, with thankfulness to God the Father. So keeping that in mind, uh, with that as our reference point to which we'll continually return, uh, we arrive at some pretty crazy verses, right? Uh, verses 18 and 19, these, these verses could start a civil war in our country. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Um, our culture is highly sensitive to matters of gender. And these verses, on the face of them at least, um, they definitely offend the, the sensibilities of a majority of people in our society, maybe even a lot of people in this room. Um, but almost as a side note, let me ask you, if God never offended your sensibilities, what would that mean? What would that mean if God never offended your sensibility? It, it wouldn't really be an encounter with the living God, would it? Um, we should expect God to contradict us, maybe even frequently. Unless, of course, uh, we were just imagining God up after our own preferences and after our own likeness. Um, if he's really God, he's probably going to contradict us. So <clears throat> let's just assume for a moment, for the sake of argument, that God might have something pretty amazing to say about marriage that might not make a lot of sense to us at first glance. It might even offend us the first time we hear it. But let's try to understand what's going on here from the Bible's view. Honestly, um, you know, in our culture, we've done a pretty terrible job of thinking about marriage anyway. So what's this going to hurt? <laughs> let's hear what the Bible has to say about it. Um, the hardest words you'll hear this morning. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I know how this sounds, but let me explain. <laughs> right? I do realize that those with more uh, egalitarian or, um, or even feminist uh, sensibilities can be offended or scared by verses like this, and I don't want to make sweeping judgments of worldviews at this point, but there is a sense in which egalitarians and feminists have a legitimate concern that needs to be addressed. You thought about that? Um, historically, in most societies around the world, women have been oppressed in some measure. And let me say right now that that's not the way it's supposed to be, and that's not what the Bible's advocating, the oppression of women. Right? Uh, males and females, as created in God's image, are of entirely equal value, dignity, and worth in God's sight, and should be in our sight, too. And that's the Bible's view of it. Paul makes that explicit especially about men and women in the church. He says in Galatians 3, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in the church, there's no, no one is a second-class citizen, right? Uh, for any reason at all. Women are welcome to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Women are welcome to be his disciples. Women are welcome to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, women are welcome to come to the table for themselves for communion. They don't have to come through their husbands or fathers. Women don't have to come to the table through their husbands or fathers. Um, we expect that women stand on equal footing with men with regard to church discipline. Right? Um, 
They, they stand on equal footing with men with regard to church membership in every way, right? However, true equality of personhood does not erase all distinctions between persons. True equality of personhood does not erase all distinctions between persons. God deliberately created male and female clearly different from one another, and he has given them different roles to play in marriage, is what our text is about. Husbands and wives are equal. They are uh, worthy of mutual care and mutual honor, but that does not necessitate the elimination of authority and submission. And here's the best example that the Bible gives that I know to, to convince you that this is true. And I think maybe the kids can help with this. So kids, pay attention. Everybody, this is your, this is your bit. <clears throat> um, are there more gods than one, kids? No, no there's only one God. Uh, in how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons of God? Go for it. Keep raising your hand. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one God in three persons, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully and equally God. Right? They're fully and equally God. The Father is not more God than the Son is God. <clears throat> Have you thought about that? The Father is not more divine, not more God than the Son is God. In the Son, whom we know as Jesus because he came in the flesh, in the Son, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, it says in Colossians uh, 2, earlier in our, in our letter. So, so kids, is the Son equal to the Father? Yes. And does the Son submit to the Father? Yes. Does the Father submit to the Son? No. In our triune God himself, there is perfect equality of persons on a level that we can't even imagine, right? Perfect equality of persons. And there is also an authority structure between those persons that does not at all imply the subordination of the one to the other. Right? The Son is fully God, equally God with the Father, right? Um, and, and this is true because it's a chosen authority structure. It's a chosen authority structure. The Son willingly submits himself to the Father. In the Trinity, each person is ultimately other-oriented so that there is perfect mutual glorification and honor and love, but there's still a chosen difference in authority roles so that the Father has authority and the Son submits to the Father's will. <clears throat> now, I don't know all the ins and outs of how this works or why, but at least we can see when we look at the Trinity that uh, in God, authority is good. It doesn't tear down. Authority does not oppress. Authority is not selfish. Authority amplifies love. And the wife in a marriage is to reflect the son's submission to the father. Right? In her submission to her husband. 
That's what it says, as is fitting in the Lord. Um, The wife is equal to her husband as a human being. And there is to be beautiful, mutual love and honor in a marriage. But the way that she loves her husband is through chosen submission, just as the way that the son loves the father is through chosen submission. It's not a submission that arises from her being lesser or weaker or subordinate. It doesn't even imply that her husband deserves her submission. Hear that, husbands. Her submission, her chosen submission does not imply that her husband deserves the submission. It is chosen and it's given as a gift to her husband. For Christians, love has to be freely given or else it's not love. So for the Christian wife, submission must be free. It must not be coerced or else it doesn't truly reflect the submission of the Lord to his father. So the wife is to take a position of, um, of deference and encouragement and seek to enable her husband to grow in various ways in the particular way that she is called to love and honor her husband through submission. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So this passage is not, it's not just the feminists who get offended by verse 18, but chauvinists uh, don't like verse 19 if they really understand it because they're undermined by it. Chauvinists are undermined by this verse because it doesn't let them use their gender as a point of superiority. The chauvinist demands his wife's submission. The chauvinist demands his wife's service. Like a harsh dictator who enslaves his people, the chauvinist would try to use a passage like this to point the finger at his wife, to grind her down, even to justify his abuse of her. That happens. Uh, That happens in the church. And if that's the way that you think you're, you're a son of the devil who distorts God's word for your own purposes and the church is against you. And that's why it's critical to read this passage in context. You read the whole letter to the Colossians and then you try to say that this passage justifies male superiority or domestic abuse. You read the whole New Testament and tell me what possible interpretation of love, the kind of love that a husband is to have for his wife, uh, allows for oppressing or harming her. Right? It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Let me read uh, just a bit from C.S. Lewis. There's a book called God in the Dock, and one of the essays in that book is called The Sermon and the Lunch, and there's a quote from it in the beginning of the bulletin. <clears throat> you can follow along there or just listen. He says that a man values home as the place where he can be himself, right? You just let down his guard, just be who he really is. A place where he can be himself in the sense of trampling on all the restraints which civilized humanity has found indispensable for tolerable social intercourse. And this, I think, is very common. What chiefly distinguishes domestic from public conversation is surely very often simply its downright rudeness. What distinguishes domestic behavior is often its selfishness, slovenliness, incivility, even brutality. And it will, happen, it will often happen that those who praise home life 
most loudly are the worst offenders in this respect. They praise it. They're always glad to get home, hate the outer world, can't stand visitors, can't be bothered meeting people, etc., because the freedoms in which they indulge themselves at home have ended by making them unfit for civilized society. If they practiced elsewhere the only behavior they now find natural, they would simply be knocked down. It will never be lawful simply to be ourselves until ourselves have become sons of God. So love, it says husbands love your wives, love the way the Bible talks about it is self-sacrificial, it's self-giving, it's not self-centered, it's not self-aggrandizing or self-seeking. Paul says in another place, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. So the one who loves is not harsh, he gives himself away, he gives up his comforts, he gives up his rights, He gives up his privileges. He gives up his very self. And only the sons of God are capable of loving in this way. Again, you see this best demonstrated. um, As the only begotten son of God gave himself away. Through whom we have our sonship. Because the best we can do is, uh, is kind of a paltry imitation of him. The son of God, he became a human He gave up all the the glories and comforts and wealth of heaven to come and be poor and homeless and to suffer. He gave himself. He became a human. He traded his life for sinful humans. The Son of God, he rose to the highest place of authority in heaven and earth, and he exercised his authority by giving up his life for love. He says uh, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So self-giving love, then, is the only proper exercise of authority in God's kingdom. Lording authority over others, that's pretty much standard operating procedure for the world. The world grasps for power. The world grasps for authority to use for itself, like dictators. But the gospel says that through your union with Jesus Christ, you've died to that. You've died to the world in all of its ways, and you have a new life. It's an entirely revolutionary life. It's a radical change that's brought about by God's grace. In Christ, you are not a self-centered chauvinist. In Christ, you're someone who exercises authority by making yourself a slave. That's who you are in Christ. In Christ, your needs take a back seat to the needs of others, especially the needs of your wife and your family. So the husband is to wield his authority with gentleness, don't be harsh, with service, and is to seek to enable his wife to grow in various ways in the particular way that he's called to love and honor her 
So you see, both husbands and wives are to love and honor their spouses and to help them grow as Christians just in slightly different ways, right? We have different roles to accomplishing that. But you're giving yourself to a good cause. It's not always to your own personal benefit, but it's to your spouse's benefit because God is transforming your spouse. God's, God's grace is at work in your spouse. He's made good promises to you, and he's also made good promises to your spouse, promises of renewal, promises of glory. So when you think of your spouse, maybe it's helpful to think of where God is taking that person, to think of that person's trajectory in life, to think of where God is taking him or her, think of your spouse without sin, which is his or her ultimate destiny in glory. Your spouse, believe it or not, will be sinless and perfect one day. Um, And think of how you as a husband or wife can cultivate that person to cultivate uh, your glorified spouse in your own particular way. How many of you, when uh, Brian and Larissa read from Song of Solomon, if you could get past the initial discomfort of it, um, how many of you resonate with what was being said from, from that passage, Song of Solomon? How many of you wives, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you wives feel that your husband's love is better than wine, that his name is oil poured out, that, his, that he is beautiful and very beautiful, an apple tree, a fruitful provider and, and security in this life? How many of you just resonate with that? God sees him that way because God sees him in Christ. And that's his destiny, and that can happen in his life now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can choose to believe that about him. And you can choose to freely give yourself in submission to him as a gift. Or you can harbor resentment. You can use what you know about him to blackmail him. You can speak disparagingly about him in front of your kids or other people. Which one sounds better to you? And uh, husbands, do you naturally resonate with Solomon's words. How many of you just feel your wife's vivid beauty and find in them a refreshing, life-giving place of uh, like an oasis of glory? But God sees your wife that way. God sees your wife that way because he sees her in Christ. And that is your wife's destiny and that can happen to her. <laughs> that can happen in her by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that about your wives? Do you seek to draw forth that person through your love, through your gentleness, through your care? Or are you just bored with your wife? Does she hold no fascination for you? Are you harsh with her because she's not giving you what you want in your own dead-end self-centeredness? Which one of those sounds better? Put your trust in the Lord and be an advocate for the glorious version of your spouse, the version of your spouse that God has promised they will one day be because of his mercy given to us in Christ Jesus. Don't complain that you've married a mess. We all married messes. 
We all are messes. All of us. But God, in his great mercy, he's begun a good work in you, and he has begun a good work in your spouse that he will certainly bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So invest yourself in that vision. That's your, that's your calling as a Christian husband and a, a Christian wife. Amen. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there is a new life that is available to all of us through faith in Christ and through the power of your Spirit that uh, we desperately need. We want that life not only for ourselves, but also for our spouses. So we pray that you would grant each one here who's in a marriage relationship and those who will be someday, that um, you would grant each of us relationships of mutual love and honor where we look to you as our guide and as the source of all of our power to live for you in our marriages, to live in the specific ways that you've called us as husbands and wives. We can't do this on our own. Uh, on our own, we wouldn't even want to. And we pray for your help, and we rest in your love and your good promises to us and to our spouses. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.